you will turn to uh, Galatians 4. Galatians 4, we are walking through a study of the book of Galatians, and we have made it to Galatians 4. We're uh, halfway through, I guess. And um, last week we looked at verses 26 through 29, and the fact that we are no longer slaves, that we as believers are no longer condemned by the law, but that the truth that we have been adopted by God, that if you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, you're a child of God. You're not just forgiven. We said you're not just justified. You're not just set free to obscurity. You're not set free to live on your own, to, to trust on your own. You're, you're, you're not only forgiven, but you have been adopted. You have been taken in by our Heavenly Father. And I pray that that truth would settle down in our hearts, even as we look at what we look at today, which builds upon that. He said in verse 26, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ. God in His great love and mercy has made a way for us who were alienated from Him because of sin, His creation, alienated because of sin. He has made a way back to Him through the blood of Jesus Christ. And as I said, today we continue upon that truth. And we will see some very, I think, challenging and convicting. I will admit, as I studied this passage, I saw some things that I had not seen before. And they were challenging. And, and I will admit to you, that, and I think you will admit as we see it, we, we oftentimes do not see things the way that God sees them. We do not see sin the way that God sees sin. We do not, our attitude towards um, looking to other things as we've seen for our identity or our security of our salvation or even proof of our sonship, if we're honest, we don't, we're not as offended by those things as God is as, as offended by them. And, and we'll see this today. And you'll see on your handout the main point for today that I want us to build upon, that I want us to see that the text teaches, it's what I believe the text is teaching us, it's this, that believers are known by God and we must fight the temptation to look for proof of our sonship elsewhere. To look for proof of our sonship or even to think that we earn our sonship. As we said last week, when I say sonship, that is not in any way diminishing any females. In the time that this book was written, the son was the heir of everything. The son would receive the entire inheritance and that's the picture that the writer here of Galatians that Paul is presenting, that he's teaching, is that we are fully heirs. And the picture that would present that would be a son. There are times in the Bible that even men, we are called the bride of Christ. He's not diminishing our masculinity there. He's not differentiating that. He's simply saying that we are the bride of Christ. Our, our Savior Jesus Christ is our groom, and one day He is coming back. And really salvation pictures that, the betrothal. But I want us to see today, and really we are building still upon what we saw in Galatians 3.3. 3. Look with me if you will. He says, Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected in the flesh? Remember, we, 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 we tried to sum that up with one word, and we said there's a tendency for all of us as Christians to live on autopilot. To what begins by faith, to what begins by the Spirit, we think that we're going to perfect it in the flesh. 
It's almost an approach that says, okay, I'll take it from here. I got it, I got it from here. And Paul is saying, what began by the Spirit is continued by the Spirit. Our, our, our sonship, as we'll see, is, that's confirmed by the Spirit, is continued in the Spirit. We don't begin by faith and then live by the flesh. We don't, we don't begin by this God and then look to these gods for our identity or our, our fulfillment or our happiness. Or, or we don't begin by this and then look to this. That's what we'll see today. And, and the question that, that Paul presents and that he's building on is this, is where are you looking and what are you looking or what are you looking to in order to confirm your sonship to God? If we were to hold up a spiritual resume, as we say, what would be on that spiritual resume? Would it be Christ and Christ alone? Or would it be Christ plus a bunch of other stuff? Because that's our tendency is we get saved by Christ and then we say, oh, but look, God, look at how I performed for you. Look at what I've done for you. Certainly you love me because of this. He says, no, no, I love you because of my son. I love you because I was willing to put Jesus Christ, my son, on a cross. And, and, and that proves that I love you. And everything we do, our praise, our worship, our lives, everything flows out of that. Not to earn it, not to think that we're, that we're paying back a debt because of it. Everything goes back to what Christ has done for us in the gospel. And, and even verses 1 through, one through uh, 11, as we'll see today, will confirm that. And look, look what Paul says in Galatians 4. He's built, again, he's building Again, he has one point. The Galatians were in danger of turning to another gospel. That's what we saw in Galatians 1, 6, and 7. That which was actually not a gospel. There's one gospel. It's Jesus Christ. And the Galatians were in danger of turning away and turning to another gospel, which actually wasn't a gospel at all. Paul says, Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the Father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. However, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those by which were nature no gods. But now you have come to know God, or rather be known by God. How is it that you turn back to weak and elemental, worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. Strong words. Paul says at the end, he says here, my concern is that you haven't really grasped the gospel. My, my concern is that maybe, maybe you're not saved. He said the same thing in verse 4 of chapter 3. I, my fear is that you suffered all these things in vain, that it was worthless. And I want us to draw from here two points today that I think will be 
Uh, I was confronted with them, uh, convicted by them. Because I think it's a danger. What we'll see today is a danger that all of us face. A, a battle that all of us... I think it's the, the danger of the subtlety of our enemy, Satan. That, that we would focus on some of the more what we would call grotesque things. And I think Satan's attack on us can be so much more subtle than, than what we think. And, and, and we don't arm ourselves. And so I, I want us to see two truths. The first one today is this. Believers in Jesus Christ are no longer slaves, but now are God's sons through adoption. And God has given us His Spirit to confirm this. God has given us His Spirit to confirm this. Last week we, we looked at how the law, in, in that day, uh, um, a master would set over his son or his children what was, what was really called a pedagogos. It could be a slave, it could be someone that they respected, and that person would raise that child to maturity. And, and Paul compares that to the law, that there was a time where you were under the law, but now that you're mature, God has sent forth His Son. That's exactly what he says in the first few verses of chapter 4. And we've seen that, that the law was a guardian, it was a manager, but, but we saw in verse 24 of chapter 3 that the law was our tutor and its goal was to lead us. Its purpose was to lead us to Christ. It was never meant to impart salvation. It was to lead us to look to another for that salvation. That's what Paul is reiterating in the first few verses. And, and last week we looked at the truth of that, that the gospel regarding our sonship, that we have not only, listen, we have not only been judicially forgiven of our sins, judicially justified we have been adopted and the fear is that i fear that so many of us stop at just simply being forgiven without understanding that god has adopted us he has taken us in he calls us sons that that our understanding of the gospel what paul is saying cannot stop it simply being forgiven, you and I who are believers in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of our sins have been declared to be sons and daughters of the one true God. What we said is the same judge, the same judge that forgave us, adopted us. He not only acquitted us of our sins, declared us righteous, but he has taken us in and taken ownership, responsibility to provide for us as his sons. And what we saw last week is on your handout again, that if we truly, if we truly understand what Christianity is all about at its core, at the most fundamental of all its truth, it's this, that we have been adopted through the blood of Jesus Christ into God's family. And thus we are children. We have been adopted. That, that was the heart of everything Everything that Paul is writing, we said that, that Galatians 3.26 really is the apex, the peak of this letter. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ. That is the issue in Galatians. How does a person become a member of God's family? Is it Christ alone or is it Christ plus doing something else? Is it solely by Christ or in this case, is it Christ plus circumcision? Is it Christ plus basically becoming a Jew? That's the issue Paul is battling. And everything else that we see in this letter goes back to that truth. As believers, we are God's children solely through the blood of Christ. Not Christ plus anything. And Paul uses adoption. He uses the reality of adoption to show, to illustrate the truth. 
And, and, and why, what Paul is saying is he's showing that, that if we look anywhere other than Christ for our righteousness, if we even as believers, if we go back to anything for our righteousness or proving or, or solidifying or even trying to pay God back, performing for our righteousness, we miss the truth. And what he's showing here is why that is so offensive to God, because he has adopted us. He's put his spirit in us, declaring that we are sons, not performers. And what Paul is saying here in these first few verses, he's reiterating what we saw in chapter 3, that deliverance from our sin and the law only comes through the cross. And those who have been redeemed are now sons. You are now presently, currently sons. It's not something that you earn. It's not something that you hope to obtain in the future. You are now sons. That's what he says. For all you are sons of God through faith. And, and what we begin to see, Paul says the same things, but in verse 4, he begins to build on it. And what we begin to see is this, that this was no accident. The gospel, salvation, Christ coming was no accident. God's adopting us through the blood of Jesus Christ was not a second best plan. It wasn't reaction to something. It wasn't a knee-jerk reaction. God didn't sit up there fretting and say, okay, oh, oh, it's gotten crazy. I better send my son. Look, look at verse 4 of chapter 4. But when the fullness of time, time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Here's the reality of what Paul says. Our adoption was orchestrated the whole work of redemption god orchestrated the whole work of redemption from start to finish god orchestrated our redemption jesus came at the exact time that god appointed jesus to come at the right time at the perfect time it says at the fullness of time what what we see there is this that our adoption through our belief in jesus christ was planned all along it was planned all along it wasn't an accident I mean, think about it. In, in the reality of, of adoption, Paul uses adoption as that illustration. You don't accidentally adopt a child. Hey, how'd that kid become your part of your family? I don't know. I mean, I just I accidentally adopted him. No, you don't accidentally adopt a child. You, you adopt a choice. You adopt a child by choice. You, you adopt a child by plan, by desire. And, and what Paul is saying is God is no different. You know, chi a child, an adopted child would not go around to the playground, I, I accidentally became a part of this family. No, you, I was chosen by my mom and dad to become a part of this family. What Paul is saying is that our, our forgiveness of sin, our adoption as children was planned by God. God designed all of history to come together at Bethlehem in the moment that it did so that sinners could be adopted by a gracious, loving, heavenly Father. Jesus' birth was planned. The Bible says His death was planned. And guess what? His return is planned. There's coming an exact date in history when God will send forth His Son back to get His bride. It won't be accidental. It will not be caused by... It will be apportioned and planned by God. This whole thing... Listen to me. This is going to rattle some of you. This whole thing is rigged under the sovereignty of God. Please hear that. We serve a sovereign God. This is not accidental. It's not second best. We, we see that in, in Colossians 1. 
Colossians 1, verses 16 and 17. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, where the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. His coming, his dying, our adoption, everything under the sovereignty and control of the one true God of this Bible. Jesus came exactly when God planned for him to come. That's what he's saying in Galatians 4.4. 4. You, you look even beyond that. If you look to Ephesians 1.4, it says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Paul says, God's affection was set on you, believer, before the foundation of the world. And, and think about that. As, as I thought about that this week, I, I thought about there, there are many families in here who have adopted and, and many, many people in who have been adopted and many people who have adopted. And think about it. You didn't wake up one morning and just decide to adopt. You had your heart set on adoption, many of you, for years. You, you had a heart set to adopt for a long... You, many of you even longed to adopt when you were little, when you were young. You had a plan and you had a movement that was moving to that desired action for a long time. Some of you, years. And at the right time, at the right time, guess what? You chose a child. And Paul uses adoption here for that very purpose that we would understand what God is doing here. And, and there are many, listen, there are many similarities that Paul draws on between our adopting a child and between God adopting us. But listen, there are some dramatic differences and that's also why Paul chooses the illustration that he does of adoption. Listen in Colossians 1.21. This is a picture of who we were when God adopted us. And, and I thought about this all week. I told Karen yesterday, you know, there's some of what this passage teaches us. It's like, I didn't wake up this morning looking forward to hear this about myself, but it's true. He says, and we, we have to see, in order to appreciate the gospel, we've got to understand the fullness of who we were when God adopted us. Listen, Verse 21 of, of Colossians 1. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you holy and blameless and beyond reproach. That, that's who God adopted. Someone, you and I, believers in Jesus Christ, who were formerly alienated, who were hostile in mind. Romans 5 says that we were his enemies. When, when you look at the gospel, when you look at the biblical account of who God adopted, God did not adopt the best. He did not adopt the most likely to succeed. He did not adopt the cutest. He didn't adopt the smartest. I, I was thinking about this, and this is dangerous because... We're talking about adoption and you and I and salvation. I'm about to talk about choosing of a dog, but forgive me. But I, I remember when I was growing up, I finally wore down my mom enough to allow her to get me a dog. And, and we got, we, I wanted a beagle. And uh, we, I scientifically, I named him Fred. Very scientific, Fred. And so my dad knew some men who knew a, a man. He had a customer who also raised beagles. And uh, we drove from Tallahassee to Mariana. And there was a pen of beagle puppies. They had had a, a litter. 
And how do you think, you think about this, you know, I walked into that cage and I remember my dad saying, well, how are you going to pick one? There's about 14 in there. How are you going to pick one? I said, Dad, I'm going to pick the first one that, the first one that runs up to me. That's what I'm going to pick. And I walked in the cage and there was a dog that ran right up. To, I bent down and he made a beeline, ran straight up to me, jumped in my face and licked me. Done. Done. It happened to be a boy. The qualification was we're getting a boy. We don't want to raise beagles. Somehow we had accidentally gotten to the gerbil raising business. We had gotten two gerbils. And if you had gerbils, you know you don't just have two gerbils. We ended up with gerbils, more gerbils than we wanted. So my mom said, look, if you do it, get a boy. But listening, I chose, I chose, there was an easy choice. I chose the dog that essentially chose me. But that's not who God chose. God chose us who were under the law. We, we saw that last week. The, the reality there, when I think about that, when you hear under the law, you've got to understand, you know what that means? That means that the, He chose the, the, the children who were cursed. He, he chose the child who was guilty. He, he chose the child that was unworthy. He, he chose the child that came with a huge debt. And that debt had to be paid. In order for you and I to be adopted, that debt had to be paid. And He chose us knowing and willingly, able and willing to, to, to forgive that debt. If you, if you go to Ephesians 2.1, it says, the, the, uh, paints a bleak picture. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this, course of this world, the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now working of the children of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh of the mind. And listen, were by nature children of wrath. That's who God chose. There, there's a book by a band named by, by the name of Russell Moore, and he is an adoptive father, and, and he wrote a book. It's called Adopted for Life. And he teaches on this same topic. Listen, listen to how he portrays uh, our adoption by God. Listen, listen to what he says. Strong words, but they're true. Russell Moore says this, Imagine for a moment that you're adopting a child. As you meet with the social worker in the last stage of the process, you're told that this 12-year-old boy has been in and out of psychotherapy since he was three. He persists in burning things and attempts regularly to hurt people and animals. You learn that the boy's father, his grandfather, his great-grandfather, and great-great-grandfather all had sketchy histories. Russell Moore then asks the question, Think for a moment, would you still want this child? Think for a moment, suppose you went forward, would you leave that child with your daughter? Would you leave him alone with your daughter? You th think about it, you got the answer in your head? If that was the child you're adopting and they said, hey, by the way, before you go any further with this, you need to know, I, I just need to tell you something. The, the, reality, the reality of what Russell Moore puts in that book is that you, that was you and I when God adopted us. That's what the gospel tells us about you and I when God adopted us. 
There was nothing in Chris Basham that drew God to Chris Basham other than God's character, His own love and mercy and grace. God chose to redeem us and rescue us and adopt us in spite of us. And God says, the Bible tells us that He not only forgave us all of that stuff, but He set His affection on us. That, that's what He says in verse 6. Because you are sons, God sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. God literally lives in us in the person of the Spirit. And, and the, the goal of that is that we would understand and comprehend that God is now our Father. Ephesians 1.13 says the Spirit in you is the seal of our adoption. It's the seal that proves that you and I are His sons and daughters. And the reason God sent forth His Spirit in us is to help us fully, you'll see it on your handout, experience and understand what it means to be sons of God because in our flesh we will not grasp that. And in our flesh, if we're honest, we struggle grasping that. And the Spirit, the Spirit does for us as children of God, as sons of the living God, the same, the same thing for, for us. I have a son and a daughter, and they bear my last name. They live in my home. They know that they are my children. They are confident to approach myself and Karen as their parents. There is a spirit in them that understands that. That is the same thing that the Spirit of God does for those of us who are believers. God put it in us that we would be confident and we could fully experience and have full assurance and fully understand what it means to be His Son. But it also qualifies us to be heirs of all that God has. My, my son Bradley, Bradley and my son Sarah Grace... I mean, my son, Sarah Grace, my daughter, Sarah Grace, they bear our last, last name. You know what? That, that entitles them. They are full heirs of whatever the estate is of Chris and Karen Basham. Now, that might not be as big a blessing as they think it will be when it comes to the end of days. But they're full heirs. And they're confident of that. Romans 8, 16 and 17 says the same thing. He says, The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God, listen to this, and fellow heirs with Christ. Do you, do you comprehend that? Fellow heirs with Christ? If indeed we suffer, that we will be glorified with Him. And the question that Paul brings forth here in this first few verses of chapter 4 is really the question that I want us to ponder just for a moment, and it's this. How do you approach God? How do you approach God? Do, do you approach God as if you were a slave? Do you approach God like you're still a slave who is afraid of God? Do, do you approach God maybe the way uh, our Maybe the way our neighbor children approach our house and they come and knock on the door. and Is Bradley here? Can Bradley come out? There's one kid, Aiden, who approaches our house with this. He just walks right in. And I've said it before. Why does he do that? Why does he feel the boldness to do that? Because he knows that Bradley is his friend. See, Aiden knows Chris and Karen's son. And you know what? Knowing Chris and Karen's son gets you access to Chris and Karen's house. Apparently, in his mind. 
And it's true. I mean, get, get, the only reason I, sh- I, don't, I mean, there's sin in me, and otherwise I wouldn't care. But part of me just wants to just pridefully say, why don't you just ask me? Can you just like pretend I'm the king of my home for like a day? <laughs> ask me. But do, do you approach God like that? Do you, just, do you just barge right in because you're confident in your relationship with the Son? Are you assured of the Father's love of you through Jesus Christ? Does the Spirit cause you to boldly cry out, Abba, Father, to exclaim that God is your beloved Father? Is that how you approach God? If not, my question for you would be twofold. Be honest with yourself. Are you truly a Christian? Have you come to God through the blood of Jesus Christ alone, or have you manufactured your own way to try to get to God? That's 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Paul says, test yourselves to see this. Is Christ in you? Is He in you? If the answer is yes, if you know you're saved, then you have to ask yourself a following question. In what ways might I be grieving or quenching, as Ephesians and and Thessalonians says, the very spirit that God put in me? Because that's what sin does to a believer. Sin does to a believer what, what, it affects our relationship with God the same way it affects our relationship on a horizontal way. We don't approach Him confidently because we know we're guilty. And that same spirit that was put in us to, to enable us to boldly cry out to God, to cry out, we know that we have unrepentant sin, that we're volitionally just maybe choosing to sin, and that sin is putting a barrier in between us and the Father. Or maybe we think that we have to do things to earn His favor because sometimes that's the way we relate to one another and we translate that to God. And so we don't boldly approach. That's what Paul is getting at here. For, for them, it was you are a part of the family. Why? Because you have been accepted through the blood of Jesus Christ. It's not about circumcision. It's not about days and weeks of the months. It's not about Christ plus anything. It's Jesus Christ alone. Paul is saying, what a privilege to call God our daddy. Literally, the word Abba, Father there, in, in many Greek uh, experts would say that it would be the equivalent of daddy. Daddy. It, it, it speaks to intimacy. Paul is saying, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And it is a done deal, all by the plan of God. He's saying, why are you wasting your time fooling around with with sin and with the world and thinking that you've done something or can do something to merit God's favor? You are already a son through the blood of Jesus Christ. And what Paul is saying is there ought to be no privilege, no privilege greater than that of calling God your daddy. I think that's what Paul in Ephesians 3 says. He prays that they would understand the height and the breadth and the width and the depth of God's love for them. If we're honest, if we're honest, we struggle with that. If we're honest, we struggle that we're understanding fully the love of God. It's hard to fully comprehend because God loves the unlovely. And you and I tend to love the lovely. And God's love for us is so much greater and different. And, and Paul is getting at this, that if we, if, we, if we fail to see ourselves as who we truly were prior to Christ, and if we fail to understand 
If we think that even now that we're sons, that I have to prove it, that I have to perform for it, that I've got to maintain it or keep it in the flesh, either one of those, Paul is saying, it destroys the gospel. It cuts the heart out of the gospel. To think that, to think that I was good, that God adopted me because, because He saw something in me worthy of adopting, that destroys the heart of the gospel. And to think at the same time, well, now that I've saved, I've got to be good at this, 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 in order for God to keep loving me. That, too, destroys the heart of the gospel. He's chosen us. I'm not diminishing obedience. Hear me. That flows out of a right relationship. What I'm speaking to is when you do that with wrong motives. And, and why... The, the why, as we said, the why becomes so big of an issue here. Self-righteousness and going to the law or some other thing on our part to merit or keep God's love, Paul is saying that's no gospel at all. That's what we saw in Galatians 1, 6, and 7. You've created another gospel that really isn't a gospel. There's one gospel. It's Jesus alone. It's Jesus' life, death, burial, resurrection alone. And Paul is, is pleading with them that they would understand fully their adoption, that they would understand the love of God, that they would understand how rich it is, how, how much God's grace has done, that it's all God. And, and that it's, sim- it's, more, it's so much more than simply the forgiveness of sins. It is the adoption and the gaining of a father. In salvation, we don't just get out of our sins. We get a heavenly father that loves us unconditionally. We're not just set free. Okay, you're free from slavery. I hope it works out. No, He takes you in. He puts His robe on you. He puts His seal upon you and takes, takes ownership and literally lives through you. That's what Paul is building on here in the first few verses of chapter 4. Continuing from chapter 3. And, and that's what he's building on. But, but that's also why he says what he says in, chap, in verse 8 of chapter 4. Why he said, you've got to understand how great a love the Father has shown us so that you'll fully understand how offensive our sin and looking to another is. And that's what he gets to in verses 8 through 11. And you'll see on your handout, looking to anything to merit your own justification before God is equated to paganism in God's eyes. Think, let that sink in. Paganism. That's what, that's what he's going to say here in verses 8 through 11. Listen, if God planned the whole story of redemption, if God made redemption possible by sending forth His Son, by crucifying, by resurrecting Him, by sending forth the Spirit and live our lives, that, that we could cry out, Abba, Father, that we could cry out, Daddy, then certainly we can trust God with the specifics of our life. Then certainly we can trust Him to carry to completion, as Philippians 1, 6 says, that he who began a good work in you will carry it out to completion. That certainly the keeping of that salvation will be up to God and not up to us. What Paul is saying is, listen, you're sons, period. We don't need our own righteousness. We have Christ's. And we have to continue to look to Christ's. And what he's saying is that you, you presently, currently have the privilege to call God your daddy, your co-heirs. That which you began by faith, you don't perfect in the flesh. 
And us as Christians, if we're honest, we have a tendency that once we're saved to begin looking to other things. Or to go back to the things that we looked at prior to Christ. Or to fall in those same traps. That, that's what he's dealing with with the Galatians. And dealing with us as well. And what Paul puts forth here in verses 8 through 11 is the utter disgust God has towards thinking that we can be made righteous or earn His favor on our own. That, that us looking for our identity and our salvation or our standing before God in anything other than Christ. That's why Paul would say in 3.3, Are you so foolish? Listen, the Galatians were saved out of a culture in which idol worship was rampant. They were slaves to these false gods. They had all kinds of false gods. And, and what they did was they would worship a god. Here's the challenge, and here's where we, where we struggle too. They would worship a specific god in order to get something from that god. If they were, when they were farming, they would worship the, the, this God so that he would send sun and he would send rain. If, if they wanted to get pregnant, they would worship this God because that God would send fertility. They were worshiping gods who really were not gods, Paul says, but they were worshiping them for the sole reason to get something from them. They only came to their God to get what they wanted from their gods. They used their gods for self-righteousness, for self. That's, that's the culture in which these Galatian Christians were called out of. And you would almost think that Paul would be concerned that that would be the culture that they would be in danger of falling back into, but that's not what he says. Look what he says. He says in verse 10, you this is what they were in danger of falling into. You observe days and months and seasons and years. That's what Paul was concerned about. You, you're going back to the law to look for your righteousness. You're going back to your behavior to merit your righteousness, to merit your standing before God when God has already declared that on you. It, it was almost like you're turning to that autopilot mentality that we talked a while back, a few weeks ago, about a pride and self-righteousness. You're just going through the motions. You're just doing what everybody else around you did, thinking you could earn or keep your salvation. And Paul is saying that is destructive and it is offensive. Look at verse 9. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how is it that you turn back to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You have been set free from those things, and now you're going right back to them to become slaves. When you have been, made, you have been known. It's not that you know God, it's that God knows you. And I thought about that, that's a powerful statement. You know, I can say all day, hey, I know such and such. It's a whole other thing for such and such to say, I know Chris. And, and that's the issue even in Matthew, Matthew 7, starting in verse 21. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Listen to what he says. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Performing miracles, casting out demons, equated to lawlessness, if it's not done in the right spirit. If it's done to merit favor with God. And, and biblical salvation 
is different from that of the world and the philosophies of the world and the wisdom of the world. Biblical salvation, you see on your handout, is true and secure because it's based on God declaring that He knows you. The, the word declared there, literally, the, the word there, know, in verse 9, it, it, it refers specifically to God choosing you in adoption. It is, it is the setting of God's affections on you specifically. I, I thought about that. I thought about people in this audience like Ken and Kimberly. I, I thought about Zerny, who adopted. Tim and Chandra Paskert. Josh and Katie, the list could go on. Think about this. You could have picked any child, any child you wanted, and you specifically set your affection on the child that you adopted. You declared over that child, I want you. I choose you. And that child's relationship is built solely upon having been chosen. You declared upon them the privilege to be named according to your family, to be invited into your family. We are children of God because we have been chosen by God. He set His affection on us in spite of us. And the Galatian believers were in danger of turning back to these other things that were not God's, of, of thinking that they could earn it or pay Him back or, or, or merit it, or they had to do something, Christ plus something, that just being chosen wasn't enough. Now I've got I've to do something else. It would be like Josh and Katie's daughter showing up to them and saying, Okay, Mommy, Daddy, now, now I'm going to perform to you and, and make you happy that you chose me. Look, we're happy we chose you because we chose you. You don't have to perform. You don't have to earn it. You live, you live out your life knowing that that title, thinkly, has been declared over you. Believer, it's the same for us. We live out the life that we live based on the fact that we have been chosen, declared His sons. We, we seek holiness and blamelessness not because we're trying to merit God's favor, because that's the character of our Father. That's what He's commanded and the Galatian believers, were, were, they, were, they were in danger of falling back and, and trying to earn what was already theirs. And Paul says, that's slavery. And he equates it to paganism. And, and the reason why this is such a big deal and how this applies to us is because it undercuts, listen, it undercuts so much of what we quote-unquote do for God. The, the Galatians were once slaves, he says there to pagan gods, and they worship demons. But by the grace of God, they were set free by the gospel, and now they're turning back to the law to perfect them. And, and Paul says, he equates any attempt to approach God from your own righteousness, any attempt to make yourself righteous from, by God, righteous before God, apart from Christ, he equates that with paganism. That's 10 and 11. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. Same people that, that did, when they did not know God, they were slaves to that which by nature were no gods, and now they're in danger of turning back to something else. And, and, and how this looks today may not be seasons and months and days. But, but here's how it looks today. Going to church, 
studying the Word, being good, living on autopilot, thinking we're good people, but doing all this out of habit rather than worship. Doing all those things for our own glory rather than God's glory. Doing all those things with an outward mindset versus a transformation of the heart mindset. That's what that looks like today. Thinking that God is happy with me because of all I do. Thinking that maybe even that God is indebted because of all I do. Of having that spiritual resume that has more than Jesus Christ on it. When, when, I, when I die and I stand before God and, and, and I am asked, okay, on what basis are you entering to heaven? Here's one, one name, Jesus Christ. It won't be, I pastored Odessa, I led all these people to the Lord, I discipled. No, no, all of that flows out of this, sonship. Sonship. It, it, I, don't, don't think that we do these things thinking we earn God's favor. That's what Paul says is no different than paganism. And, and this is a tough truth. But listen to me, think about it. Hindus, Buddhists, Muslims, Mormons... If you want to work your way to God, I promise you they outwork you. If you think you can pray your way to God, I promise you they outpray you. I, I spent a week with a, with a Muslim one time in the Dominican. Five times throughout the day, he stopped work to go, to go pray. Five times. You think you're going to earn your way to God? I'm telling you, Buddhists, Hindus, Muslims, they'll outwork you. Their whole system is based upon works. Their whole system is based on self-righteousness. That's what makes it false. That's why they're condemned, condemned by God. And Paul says to do these things under the cloak of Christianity, to do these things thinking you work or earn your way to God, he says that's paganism. Think, think about this. If you're here to check the box, if you're here just going through the motions... If you're here for any other reason than what Daniel sang about today, the worship of the one true God and his adoption of us as sons through the blood of Jesus, essentially it's paganism. If you're here thinking, I'm going to do that and God's going to be indebted to me, that's paganism. That's false worship. D David Platt, I, I, I read this quote from David Platt this week as I, as I thought about it. And, and I thought about it as I read the quote, 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, and it says that Satan disguises himself. He masquerades as an angel of light, pretending to be something he's not. And I thought about that verse, how Satan masquerades. And David Platt said this, and think about this. David Platt said this, What if Satan's strategy... To condemn your soul involves not tempting you to do all the wrong things, but instead leading you to do all the right things with the wrong spirit. What if Satan's strategy is not to get me, not to, get me to commit adultery, but just to get me to, to look at, just to be okay with looking at other people? You know, not, not, to completely, not to completely alienate myself from my mother-in-law, but to get me to go and serve her all the while hoping everybody sees me and credits my account with all the stuff I'm doing. You know, not be so grotesque as to abuse the word or, or take advantage of the word and not teach it well, but to get me to teach it with a spirit that says, hey, look at Chris. Look at how good Chris is. To get you to want me more than you ought to. Instead, my job is to get you to want him. 
See how subtle it is? It's simply doing outwardly all the right things, but for the wrong reasons. And, and outwardly, all these false religions of the world and paganism and all these things, outwardly they look right, but inward, it's the wrong motive. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 23, 27. He calls the, the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. Outwardly, they looked beautiful. Inwardly, they were dead bones. Beautiful on the outside, dead on the inside. And that's the world system. Appearance-oriented. What people think about us oriented. You see it on your handout. The basic principle of this world and false religions is that we can save ourselves. To think that we can work our way to God. To think that by performing, if, if I do this or don't do that, that God will be pleased with me. Listen to me. That's not how you love your children. That's not how God loves His children. I, I don't love my kids because they perform well. I love my kids because by God's grace, He gave them to me. There are certain things that are expected of them as, as bearing the name Basham, but, but that doesn't make me love them. And, and even the reason to all the things that I expect of them, that Karen and I expect of them, you know why we do? It's because we do love them. And we don't want them entangled with the things of the world. It's the same with God. And see, in, in before Christ, they came to their God the Galatians would come to whatever God they felt needed that, that could provide exactly what they wanted. They were only worshipped to get things from God. The reality is Christians worship, why? Because He's God. What we get in salvation is God. The beauty of salvation is we get God. That's what He says. It's not that you know God, it's rather you are known by God. And we have to be very careful, and what Paul is saying is not to make Christianity look like every other false religion in the world. And, and this language is strong, and, and I will confess that, but Paul is speaking this way to wake them up from their lethargy so that they do not fall into this trap. He's literally, he, he's literally trying to stop them before they go any farther, before they spend one more moment in this foolishness. And you think, I thought about it. If your child was about to hurt themselves, if there's a pot of boiling water, let's say, on the stove, and your child is about to grab that pot, now, Bradley, that, that, that may not be the best idea. You know, you might not want to do that. No, I'm going to yell at him. I'm going to get his attention. I'm going to shock him into stopping in his tracks right where he is from doing what he's about to do. That's literally what Paul is trying to do here, to stop them in their tracks. Strong language. And he's saying, you don't, you don't come to God thinking, I'm going to come to God to get. No, I, you've already gotten. It's, it's, it's your sons. And, and the challenge with this is that it can be so hard to detect in our own lives, in our own hearts. And, and here's how, as I thought about it, here, here's, I want to help us walk away with a question to ask ourselves just Ask yourself this question. It's, a, it's on your handout. It's a diagnostic. You know, when you take your car to the shop and, and you're telling them what's going on, they run some diagnostics so they can figure out what's wrong. Here, here's the diagnostic. Ask yourself this question. What is required in order for me to be happy? What's required? What could be taken away 
What could be taken away and I'd no longer worship? That, that was the essence, the, the, the book of Job. That is the essence. If you go to Job 1, I think it's 8 or 9, Satan asked God this question. He says, does Job worship you for nothing? You've blessed him with all this stuff. Of course he worships you. He worships you because you've been so good to him. Basically accusing God of having purchased Job's love for him. And the book of Job, it really answers the question, why do you worship? Will you and I worship God for nothing? Meaning simply because he's God? You know, I, I, even as I say that, I mean, I'm speaking to a crowd that involves people who, who have lost both their children. I'm speaking to people who have lost their spouses. I mean, this is a group of people who have lost their health. Will, will we worship God in spite of that? I hope so. Or do we worship God because He's given me a beautiful wife and two healthy kids and a home and, and two cars and more than I'll ever need? Well, that's not real worship. Paul is saying that's paganism. That's not Christianity. The, the, question, the question I have to ask myself is this, why am I here? What, what are we seeking from what we're worshiping? Are we seeking after God or are we seeking after someone else or something else? Are we here to worship, to become more intimate and know God better and be known by God? Or is it to get something from Him? Are we here because He's adopted us and forgiven us and, and, sanctify, and is sanctifying us? Or is it to get something from Him? And Paul says, if that's your approach to God, if that's what you think Christianity is, verse 11, he says, I fear that I have labored over you in vain. He says, it's possible that you're believing a false gospel. That's what he dealt with in the first chapter. You know what he's saying? He's saying genuine conversion, genuine conversion rather, is not restricted to a one-time event. Listen, those who are truly saved demonstrate their new life by continuing in faith alone until the last day. Perseverance doesn't save you. Perseverance proves that you're saved. You continue to be happy in Christ until the end. Listen, he says in Colossians 1.23, all these things, he says, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established, steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which you proclaimed in all creation. In, in Hebrews 3, he says the same thing. Verse 6, he says, but Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence in the boast of our hope. Verse 14, for we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance. It's remaining in Christ. It's staying in Christ. It's being happy in who God is. I don't want to labor in vain here. I want us to be, as I said last week, happy in God. I want us to grow up in all respects of our salvation to maturity. I want us to be a people that worship God because of who He is. As we see next week, he says in verse 4, 19, My children with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. That's my heart here. That Christ would be formed in us. That we would grow up. That we'd be immovable. That no matter what, 
as Job did. We would be as Job that no matter what, we will worship God because he is worthy.